Well, good morning. If you'll join me, we'll go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. So, Father God, we just come before you. And God, again, just so grateful to be able to gather together with like-minded brothers and sisters under your name. And that we are able to open up your word and see who you are. And so, God, I just pray that this morning you speak through me to hearts that are ready to see your love for us and therefore to draw closer to you in this time. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I don't know if you're a social media person or not. I don't get on hardly anymore. I tried like just not using it at all. But I found a good reason to get on this week. If you uh, looked at anything that I posted, you will see that I am not the best dog sitter. Uh, Thursday, Heather and I started dog sitting. Heather was working, and this is for Abby Nelson. It's this little schnauzer called Petey, who is very skittish, who does not like me. And so uh, just, I'm going to be good to him even though he doesn't like me. So I go in to get ready to feed him. I open the gate. I reach in to put some dog food down, and he darts right by me. Starts running down our driveway, and I start sprinting after him. I'm also a good father, though. And I realized Isaiah was still at the house. And so I had to turn around, run back. Isaiah was still in the stroller. We had just got back from a walk. And so I ran back, got Isaiah in the stroller, and we start sprinting down the driveway. And I'm trying to imagine it in my head. I'm so glad we don't have surveillance cameras all over the place because what you would have seen is this schnauzer sprint across the road, our black lab sprint across the road, and then me and our child sprinting across the road after it. And for the next half mile, we are running through yards, just chasing this stinking schnauzer. And finally, I lose contact with the dog and I'm like already ready for work. I'm dressed up, probably nicer than I am right now. And I am like, if I have to dive on this dog, I don't really know if I want to because I'm going to get grass stains on everything. And so I just keep running. I lose contact with the dog. So then I put on social media. If you see this dog, I have no idea what you're going to do. Trank the dang thing. I don't care. Uh, just don't kill it. Like it's not ours. We need to return it to its parents still. And for like the next six hours, nothing. And finally, I get a call from animal control, and they're like, we have spotted the dog. Can you be here? And I'm like, yes. So I go back into town. I'm looking for the dog. I can't find it. So I finally go home, put Isaiah back to bed. And next thing I know, I see Abby's mom driving down our driveway. And I'm like, sweet, maybe she found it. And I'm like, I open the door. Did you find him? No, but he's right there. And the dog had returned to our house. And it was like, sweet, but... It still doesn't like me, so it runs around our shed. So I continue to just sprint after this dog for like the next five minutes. I mean, thankfully, we don't have security cameras. So there's, don't try breaking into our house though, but there's no visual evidence of this. But I'm telling you, I am like running all over until the dog finally goes back into its pen. And it was like, that's all it took. So I, I spent so much of my day, and, and here's the reason that I'm telling you that. One, I think it's hilarious now. Uh, the dog still doesn't like me. But I was willing to, like, throw off all abandonment for this dog. I mean, I was willing to look like a fool running through people's yards and everything. I was willing to just chase after a dog. Now, the dog was scared. The dog didn't know what was going on. It, it was just running. And yet I was willing to chase after it. Now, what about whenever there is an intentional 
offense committed against you, what's your response? How do you respond whenever somebody intentionally says something about you or does something that makes you mad? You're probably not chasing after them like I did after that dog. I was ready to do something to that dog, but it's not my dog. But I, I was like, there was kind of this, like, if it was my dog, I'd have said, forget it. Abby's not here, so I can say all this stuff. Um, she's traveling back. We still have the dog. But you're probably like me, that whenever there's an intentional offense, you're not like, okay, how can I make things right? How can I go to them and be like, you know what? You kind of hurt me. I'm not really, it, 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 it hit me a little harder. How can we reconcile this relationship? That's probably not a majority of our initial responses. Some of you more holy people might have that response. Good for you. But if you're like probably a majority of people, you're thinking, they hurt me, I'm done. I'm going to cut them out. I'm going to not contact them anymore. If I see them, I'm going to avoid them. I'm going to do everything possible not to have to deal with them. And thanks, thank God that was not his response. Because we're going to be in the book of Hosea this morning. And we're going to see that there was an intentional offense against God that is far greater than any has ever been done to me and any has ever been done to you. And we're going to see that God's response is not to run away from those who offended him, but instead he runs to them. And he does that by illustrating it in the life of Hosea. And so what we're going to see is that Hosea and his prophecy is showing us that Jesus is a God who pursues after us. He is the faithful bridegroom. He is the pursuing God that even though it's our offense, he runs to us. So we're going to be in Hosea this morning. If you want to flip there, we're going to mainly be in chapter 3. Uh, actually, that's not true. We're going to be all over the book. But there are some big things that God has to say to us. So first, the overview. Because again, when you read Hosea, the first kind of three chapters are like, okay, I can kind of understand that. And then you get to the final 11 chapters, and it suddenly becomes this, like, this is confusing. It's, it's prophetic language. It's, it's terminology that I don't really understand. And so that's why we're looking at these overviews every Sunday, so that when you read these passages, you can understand this is what God is saying to his people, but also to us here today. And so Hosea, <coughs> excuse me, is one of three prophets who was called to live out his prophecy. And we'll see that here in a little bit, but you have Isaiah who is told to wander around naked, living out the prophecy that he was uh, prophesying about. You have Ezekiel who lost his wife. He was told, do not mourn for those who pass. And then his wife actually ended up dying. And then Hosea is commanded by God to go and marry an unfaithful person. And so his life is a portrayal of God's love for his people, but also the people's unfaithfulness towards God. And we see that played out. So Hosea chapter one, again, verse one gives us information about who, when, who wrote it, 
when they wrote it, and who the audience was. It, was, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and, the day, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So you have two Jeroboams. One was right there when Israel divided. This is the second one, Jeroboam II, who came to the scene later on. And so right there we have the author being Hosea. We have kind of the dating of it, which is during those king's reigns, which was really from 790 to 687. But we know that he prophesied during the fall of Israel, which was 722 B.C. And so we know that the prophecy came probably at the later end of that. And Hezekiah didn't become king until 715 B.C. So it's probably the middle 700s towards the end of that century. He had some contemporary prophets. If you've been following along with us, those kings' names are kind of the similar names to other prophets, like the prophet Amos, who also prophesied to Israel, and then the prophet Micah and Isaiah, who were prophets to the southern kingdom, Judah. But Hosea, like Amos, his main audience is the northern kingdom. He talks about both of them, but he is primarily speaking to the northern kingdom, Israel, or as you read, sometimes he calls them Ephraim as well. And so the context of it, we're kind of skipping around in your notes there. <coughs> the context is just like Amos, Micah, and Israel. You're looking at economical, political, and military growth. Things are going well for them. And again, they're thinking because things are going well, we have the favor of God. But instead, what these prophets are telling them is things aren't so well between you and God. Your sin is being called out and Hosea specifically prophesies against the sin of idolatry. He's saying you are committing idolatry. You are going to high places. You are worshiping these foreign gods that you should not be. And he compares it as his life plays it out to spiritual adultery. That when Israel goes to these other gods, they are cheating on the one true God who called them out of Egypt. Who called them to the promised land and has provided so much for them. And yet they are rejecting him. Hosea speaks uh, roughly 150 times against the sins of Israel, and over half of them are specifically against idolatry. He is calling them out for the, uh, their idolatry. And again, Hosea is a prophet who lived this out as God called him to go and marry Gomer, who was a prostitute. She was going to go and love another man. And by what this is showing us is, in the portrayal of Gomer, we see Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And then Hosea going to her, we see God pursuing her, God being faithful. We see the faithfulness of God. And the message that Hosea is preaching and prophesying about is one that we've seen before. Judgment is coming because of your sins against God. Remember the Deuteronomy 28 where God says, if you are faithful to me, if you live according to the conditions of my law, blessings will come against you or will come upon you. But if you are unfaithful, then disaster will come and judgment will come upon you. And so that's what Hosea is prophesying about. You're not faithful. 
So judgment is coming against you, but he says, if you repent, God will bring you back. He puts a lot of emphasis on repenting and turn back to God, and he will bring you back. One thing that Hosea specifically prophesies against, they were worshiping other gods, but they were worshiping Baal. And you might be familiar with Baal where, like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, where he kind of has the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And they wet down, or they, they try and get Baal to rain down, and Elijah does the trash talking, like maybe he's sitting on the throne, maybe he's relieving himself, maybe he's napping, but he's not responding to you. And then Elijah says, douse mine with water, get it super wet. And then God rains down fire. There's that showdown between Baal. That's in 1 Kings. And here we are a couple centuries later. And yet Israel, seeing that, is like, hey, you know what? We want to worship Baal. And so Hosea is calling them out for their worship of Baal, who was a weather god. They thought that Baal would bring the rain. Baal would bring the agriculture. He would bring the prophets. He would be the one that would be faithful to them. I mean, just on that, thinking of Israel and walking through the wilderness and seeing God bring manna, God bring quail, God bring water, God bring provisions over and over. And they're like, nah, it wasn't God. It has to be Baal. We're going to worship Baal. And so God is like, whoa, no, it's been me. And so they worshiped Baal, who was the weather god, and it was a perverse religion. Like, God is calling for the holiness of his people, and Baal worship was the complete opposite. It really transitioned, or not transitioned, but centered around the human sexuality and having uh, affairs with temple prostitutes. Because if you did that, then Baal would see that and make your land be fertile. And so here God is saying, let the marriage bed not be defiled, that God made them man and woman and the two will cling together. And yet Baal worship is, I'm going to go and I'm going to commit these perverse acts in worship of this foreign God. And not only that, though, there was also drunkenness. There was human sacrifice. There were human bodily mutilations. People would mutilate their body. And then there was also, um, <coughs> excuse me. There was also incest. Sounds like a religion I want to be a part of. Not really. But yet they were like, hey, we're going to go and we're going to worship this Baal. And so God has this word saying judgment is coming because you are unfaithful to me. And then the outline of Hosea is the first three chapters. It's kind of hard to break it down, but you can look at the first three chapters as Hosea's personal life displaying what his prophecy is. Because it's kind of more narrative form, where you see God calling Hosea to marry Gomer, and then Gomer is unfaithful, and Hosea is faithful. Gomer goes and sleeps with other men, and Hosea is told to go after her. He is faithful to her regardless of her lifestyle against him. And then you get chapter 4 through chapter 14, and that is where you see kind of the prophetical interpretation of what Hosea was living out. You see God calling Israel out for their unfaithfulness, for their spiritual idolatry, but through that, or spiritual adultery, through that you see God's faithfulness. And so that's what you see when you read through Hosea. 
And so sometimes, I don't know about you, but if you've ever heard somebody talk about something that they've never actually experienced, there's this disconnect with it. I've tried like preaching on farming, for example. I'm not a farmer and it does not go over well because I don't know what I'm talking about. But for Hosea, he is living out this message. And so there's a deeper impact to what he has to say because when he goes to Israel and says, you guys are committing spiritual adultery against God, he is able to relate to that. He knows what it feels like. He can relate to God experiencing that because Gomer has cheated on Hosea. But then he's also able to relate to this is how much God loves you. That he is a God who pursues after you. And that's what we see in Hosea. God calling Hosea to live out his message. This is the very second verse. We see what God is calling Hosea to do in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. Where God says the Lord first spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, go... And take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Go and take this woman who is unfaithful. Now the Jews were told not to have anything to do with unfaithful women. They were a religion and a people of of, of marital purity. And for God to be saying this would be like, whoa, but God has a message for his people through that. And he goes on to tell us in verse two why he is telling Hosea to do this. He says, go and take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land, the people of Israel commit great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. It's one thing for people to hear this, but it's another for them to witness and see this being played out. That Hosea would understand what it is that God is calling for them to do. Because Hosea is giving us a visual of God's love for us. And also a visual of Israel's sin against God. I mean, it's one thing to say, Israel, you have sinned. You have gone against me. And it's kind of like, okay, like on what level? But whenever you look and you say, you have gone and slept with other gods, you have gone and been unfaithful to the thing that you were supposed to be faithful to, it hits on that different level. That God is saying, this is how unfaithful Israel has been to me. They are going, and he uses strong language. He doesn't even just say they're, they've gone and found somebody else that they love and, you know, they're trying to be committed to them. No, he says they have gone and committed whoredom and are having children of whoredom. And honestly, it feels really weird to say that word up here right now. But yet that's what God is saying. And then he says to Hosea, go and marry this woman who is going to do this. Now, I know sometimes we feel like God puts some really weird calls on our life. That might take one of the cakes. Where God is saying, hey, this woman, she's going to cheat on you. She's not going to be faithful to you. She might even have this past already of this. But yet I want you to go because I have a message for the people of Israel. I have a message for my people of this is the amount of love that I have for you. That they have been unfaithful to me. They have broken the covenant. And you read this and it's like God is saying judgment is coming. And it's like, well, that's kind of rude of God. But yet then he hasn't broken the covenant. 
God has been nothing but faithful to the people of Israel. Israel has broken the covenant completely. And God is still making this last appeal to Israel, saying judgment is coming, but if you come back to me, it doesn't have to. If you come back to me, I will take you back as mine. Because the sin of Israel is causing them to step away from God. We see this in Hosea chapter 4. Where he says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. Those are like the Ten Commandments and they're breaking them. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Then in verse six, he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them because of their spiritual adultery and then chapter 7 verse 10 he says the pride of israel testifies to his face they do not return to the lord their god nor seek after him for all of this here god is saying they have totally gone against me they have rebelled against me they have forsaken me they have broken the covenant now what has god done to deserve this God kind of asked that same question. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught them to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. God's like, all I've ever done is given them love. Even in the wilderness, when they were complaining and arguing about me, I gave them manna. I gave them water. I led them through the Red Sea. I led them through the wilderness. I led them into the promised land. I provided for them. I drove out the inhabitants before them. I was nothing but good to them. What did I do? And the more I called out to them, the more they ran away. The more they rejected. And here again, we see who's the one at fault here. Who is it that has committed the sin? It's not God. It's Israel. But who is the one that is doing the pursuing? Who is the one that is seeking the reconciliation? It is the one who is at fault or the one who is not at fault. So in, in a lot of relationships, whenever I hurt somebody, I can sense it usually sometimes. I'm sorry if I've never caught it. If you're like, <laughs> I'm still mad at you, Andy. I apologize right now. But usually, especially with Heather and I, I can tell when I've like insert foot in mouth when I've gone too far. And so then I'm the one that is like, I've done the offense. How can I make it right? How can I help you out through this? How can I better the situation? That's not what we see here. We see Israel committing the offense. 
and God is pursuing after them. Israel doesn't even care that they've committed wrong. They haven't even apologized at this point. They are still seeking after. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 5, it said, Their mother played the whore. She conceived them, has acted shamefully. She said, I will go to my lovers who give me my bread. I'm going to go, you know what, my husband, he didn't provide for me. It's all these other men that are able to provide for me. I'm going to go to them who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. And God says in verse 8 of that, he says, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. God is saying they're the ones that are caught in the iniquity. They're the ones who have broken the covenant, but I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to chase after them. The natural response would be retaliation. And, And who would blame God here? If he didn't say, not only did you commit an act, you are in the process of committing this act. You have no remorse about yourself, and so therefore, I'm going to wipe out you. I'm just going to, you're, you're done. I'm going to destroy everything. I'm done with the whole world, and let's call it good. I'm not going to tranquilize the dog. I'm going to end its life. Like, that's understandable for God at the extent that Israel has offended against God. And you know what? We're not just talking about Israel here. We're talking about us too. The story of Israel is the story of us, that we also have committed spiritual adultery against God, that we have gone against his ways, that we have worshiped the the God of self, of caring more about what I want, what I need, what makes me comfortable than the one true God. We have worshiped the God of luxuries. We have worshiped the God of time, the God of social acceptance. We have worshiped these other gods and put them above the one true God. And yet God seeks after us. God pursues us. He comes running after us because there is this thing that sin does. It's probably the most devastating effect of sin separation from God. It totally separates us from God. Our sin did that. Hosea chapter 5 verse 4. Their deeds, their sin, does not permit them to return to their God. Our sin separates us from God. But what do we see God do? He runs towards us. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1. The Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Not that she was, not that that was her past life. She is. She's loved by another man. She is an adulteress. Go again, Hosea, and love her. Pursue her. Seek after her. Just as the, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, even though they turn to other gods, and love cakes and raisins. Even though they they are pursuing after these other gods, I am going to seek after them. I am going to run after them. Now it's one thing to go after them, to chase them down. And then to be like, all right, you're coming back with me, but these are the things. I expect the house to be kept in order. You're gonna be on a very tight leash. You're not leaving. You are pretty much, you're my wife, but you're stuck at home forever. I don't even want you looking at another man right now. 
But what does God do? God goes, and then we see what Hosea says. He says, so I bought her. She's his wife. Why is he needing to buy his own wife back? But he paid the price to redeem her from the slavery that she was in. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley, which they think equates about 30 shekels of silver, which is the price that Deuteronomy tells us is what you pay for a slave who's dead. That if a, it says if a slave is gored by an ox and dies, you shall pay 30 shekels of silver and kill the ox. Hosea pays this price for Gomer. He runs after her and he pays her. And I, I just kind of wonder what is going through Gomer's head at this time? Shame? Guilt? Kind of probably some fear? Kind of some uncertainty? How, how can I be loved again after I was still in the act? I think of John chapter 8 where the woman is caught in the middle of adultery and they bring her before Jesus and they're like, we should stone her, right? But you say we should forgive her. What should we do? And Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he has this moment with her where he looks her in the eyes and he says, woman, where are they? Who condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. There's only one person left. The one true person who could condemn her. But Romans chapter 8 tells us, who is it that will condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the only one that can. But it says he died for us. Jesus is standing there before her. And he says, where are they that condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Hosea looks at Gomer, he pays the price, and then he says, you're coming home with me. And you're no longer going to live in this lifestyle. You're going to be my wife, and I'm going to be your husband, and we are going to dwell together, and we are going to love one another. I'm not going to have you walk around in shame. I'm not going to have you walk around feeling guilty. I love you. I bought you back. You are now mine. That's the story of Jesus for us. That is where we see God pursuing after us. That he gave his only son for us. Because here's the thing, Gomer's value was that of a dead slave. It was actually probably quite a bit more than that, but that's what he paid for her. How do you know what the value of something is? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you get on Facebook Marketplace right now. Uh, I've said it before, I'm looking for Toyota 4Runners. Right now, they are extremely overvalued. I mean, people are like, you could find a 1996 Toyota 4Runner with 283,000 miles on it, and people are like, yeah, I want 15 grand for that. And it's like, no. Why are they able to value it at that, though? Because somebody's willing to pay that price. You find the value of something based on what somebody is willing to pay. Have you ever wondered what your value is? Have you ever thought about that? Well, according to the world, it's probably not a lot. You probably walk around thinking that sometimes even, especially if you're introverted and you don't like groups or something, and it's like, oh, man, nobody's talking to me today. Nobody really cares about me. I wonder if I would just end my life, if anybody would even notice. I mean, that is a big thought that is going through the world right now as we see the suicide rate increasing more and more because people are seeing that, according to the world, they're valueless. That James tells us your life is a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow, and it's like, okay, so what's the point? But when you look at God, 
you see what your value is. He is willing to pay the utmost price for you. That John 3.16 tells us God so loved you that he paid the price of his only son. That if you believe in him, you should not perish but have eternal life. What's your value? I mean, I don't care. Like, I, I saw a video the other day, and it was the most expensive car in the world. And I mean, we're talking like a lot of money that I'll never see in a lifetime. Millions upon millions. And so I was thinking it's like got to be this brand new Bugatti or this brand new Lamborghini. It was like a 1970 Ferrari. Jay Leno owned it. And I, that's not true. Some, he had like the second most expensive car. But it was just like, man, that's not even that cool of a car. But the value that was placed on it made it so cool that that guy's driving around like, I got, like somebody is going to pay me $60 million for this car. It changes how you see that. When you're able to see your value to God, that he relentlessly pursued you and he paid the ultimate price for you, it should change how you live your life. It should change how you see yourself. Not that like, oh, nobody cares about me, but that the God of the universe who knows all 7 billion people in the world knows the number of hair on your head. It says that his thoughts about us are more than the sands on the whole world. Even more than the sands on the beach is like an insurmountable number. And that's how much God thinks about you. And that God cares about you so much and that God loves you so much and values you so much that he gave his only son for you. That is quite the value that we receive. Just as Gomer was still in her sin and Hosea went and bought her back, that's what God did for us. Because even as like people who have been, you know, Christians for a long time. And so we're, we're going through the process of sanctification. We are like not cussing anymore, not drinking anymore, not, not living the way that we did. We still struggle with pride. And so our pride can tell us I'm actually a pretty good person. Of course, God loves me now. I've got my stuff together. Whereas what scripture tells us and what we see in Hosea is God didn't wait for you to get your stuff together. How many times do you hear somebody say when you're like, hopefully we're saying this, hey, you should join us at church. How many times is the response, well, I just got a couple things I got to get together first. Well, good luck ever coming and joining us. Because if I waited until all my stuff was together, I still wouldn't be here today. That God loves us while we were still committing spiritual adultery against him. Romans 5, 8 tells us this. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he pursued you while you were still a sinner. And he paid the ultimate price because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for us to get our stuff together. He says, this is the value that I place on you. I'm going to let my only son pay the price that you're supposed to pay so that you can leave your life of sin and that you can come and live with me. This is the story of history. This is the story of God's word. God pursuing after his people. That God created everything and he ended it by creating 
man and woman, so that he could walk with them. Not because he needed anything from us, but because he loves us. And it says that the man and woman were able to walk with God. It says that they were naked and unashamed, and then they ate the fruit. And so they got kicked out of the garden. And so then what God says is, I'm going to come and dwell among my people, but I don't have a permanent home, and they don't have a permanent residence, so we're going to build what's called the tabernacle. And I'm going to dwell among them because I want to be with my people. There's this interesting thing that you read over really quick in Exodus, though. That when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, experiencing the glory of God, standing in God's presence, God says, the way that I'm with you is how I will also be with my people. Do you know what the people's response was? We don't want that. Moses, you go and be a representative for us. We don't want to stand before God. Whereas God is saying, I want to be with my people just as I am with you, Moses. And the people said, we don't want that. So God built the tabernacle and resided among them. And then there was a permanent place. God built, had the temple built. This is his permanent home. And God actually says, you're going to build me a home. Heaven is my home and earth is my footstool. But okay, to satisfy y'all, build it, and I'll come and dwell among you there. And then the temple gets destroyed. The people rebel against God. And so what happens now? God continues to relentlessly pursue after us. Because no longer is there a temple in Jerusalem. No longer is it this building here. Instead, God says, I'm going to send Jesus to pay the price so that I can be in perfect relationship with my people again. And he's going to have to leave, though, so that I can actually go and put my spirit in them and I will dwell in them more than they've ever known before. That the prophets of old, we might stand before them and be like, man, you guys got to hear God's voice. You got to Adam and Eve actually walk with God. And they're going to look at us and be like, yeah, but the spirit of God dwelled inside of you. You had a relationship with God that was not known to us. You are, as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 tells us, the body of Christ. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Again, we see our value. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. That God dwells in you. I think that's twofold there. God dwells in you individually, but also what we are here. We are the body of Christ. We collectively as believers are the temple of God. That he dwells among all of us because he loves you. That's what you need to see when you read Hosea. That God loves you so much that he relentlessly pursues after you. And bought you back when you were still in sin. So that he could have this relationship with you. So that we could live together with him. It's one of the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest examples that we have of God's love for us in the Bible. That we're told, it, it, it's pretty much the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But again, there was... There, there was this necessity to happen for this. God has the message, repent. 
repent and turn back to me. Because Hosea bought Gomer. And he said, now you must live with me. You know what Gomer could have done? Nope. I'm going to keep living this life. I'm not coming back to you. I'm going to reject the price that you paid. That that's what we can do to God's offer. He's already paid the price. He's already opened the prison doors. Now we just walk through them. We accept his love. We accept his payment. And then we say, God, I want to live in this new covenant, which Craig told us is through the blood of Jesus. And I just want to live for you. When you realize the value that God has placed on you, it will change your relationship with God. It will change how you live. That it's like, I don't want to live the life of a spiritual whore anymore. I don't want to live the life of spiritual adultery against God because I see the value that he placed on me, how much he paid for me. And so I just want to live for him because he is pursuing you. He loves you. And, and here's, we'll, we'll close on this. He knows every single thing about you. And that's still what he did. He knows literally the thoughts in your head that you pray to God never get exposed. And he loved you. And he paid the price of his son for those so that you can be in relationship with him. Don't take that lightly. Father God, thank you for doing it all, for paying the price, for, for seeking after us when we were slaves to sin. Thank you for giving us this example of your love for us. And God, I just pray that it resonates deeply inside of us of how much you love us. And God, may it change how we live our lives now. May we live for you and may we just accept that love and live out of it. And so God, I just ask that um, if there be anybody who has not received salvation in Jesus, who has not stepped through those prison doors that you opened for us, God, may they find redemption in him and see the love that you have for them and therefore just surrender their lives to you. God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the message has been spoken, and as you can